Amen. Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. It is awesome to be with you guys this morning. Uh, I just want to say the same thing that that Drew said about Bobby. I really uh, love that guy, and I'm grateful for him being here this morning. He's somebody that I've kind of gotten to know of late, you know, recently that I haven't actually known. Like, I've known of him. We run in a lot of the same circles. We have a lot of mutual friends. And so it's like we've met, we've talked, we've shaken hands. But over the course of the last 15, 16 months, I feel like I've gotten to know him and know his heart. And I love his heart. (laughs) He's a wonderful and amazing guy. He is really an example of a lot of what we're going to be talking about today, just in terms of going all in on God and saying, hey, here I am. What do you want to do with me? He just recently resigned the job that he had, which is an amazing job, and he is leading a ministry of prayer. It's called One City Prayer. If you go to onecityprayer.com, you can learn all about it, and I invite you to do that. These guys have been meeting for prayer from 7 to 8 o'clock in the morning, wait for it, every day since the quarantine began. Every day. That's commitment. That's amazing. You know, and Beth and I and Ryan Brasington have, have had the privilege of being a tiny, tiny little piece of that. You know, so we're part of the one city team, but like these guys are the, you know, like they're the bacon and the eggs. You know what I mean? Like it, they're really, really amazing folks. And one of the things that I appreciate about it is they are crying out to God for God to move in our region. Think of the city as South Florida, not as Fort Lauderdale or Davie or wherever it is that you live, but they're looking at our region and they're going, God, we are desperate to see you show up and do what, by the way, he has done dramatically and miraculously somewhere and usually multiple places in the world, okay, in every century of the Christian church. Everyone. What is a revival? It is when God, by the Holy Spirit, reaches down from heaven. It's like he bends down to the dying embers of the fire of our heart for him, and he awakens his slumbering church. He blows on it by the Spirit until we are burst into flame again. And the world is blessed when the church is awakened. It's a work that he does in his people. So that's the heart of these guys, and I'd encourage you to check that out and be a part of it. That's awesome. That's amazing. Love that. The other thing that I've been learning about Bobby, I was ta- from Bobby, I was telling Beth this, and I told our team this. I said, you know, I'm kind of an agenda-driven person. Like, if I have three meetings with you and there's no agenda for the first two, I'm definitely zooming in for the third. You know what I mean? Like, Because I, I feel like we've got to be productive, and, and what I forget, and this is a big forget on my part, is that oftentimes just being together is itself productive. That is an agenda item. And a lot of times it's the most important one. And I think I do that with the Lord. You know, I've got 45 minutes in the morning and I'm like, okay, so I've got 14 things and I want to learn this and I want to talk about this and I'm going to journal this and I'm going to check off all my lists and we're going to pray about this and here's what we're going to talk about. And I think sometimes the Lord is just going, hey, would you just want to crawl up on my lap now? We'll just hang out for 45 minutes. I'll give you a hug. And when I let him do that, it's the most productive 45 minutes of my day, week, month, year. Learning that from Bobby. He gets just being in the presence of the Lord. And so I'm really blessed by him as a friend and and grateful that he can be here this morning. So we are going to close out a study that we began 24 weeks ago. And I know that because this is part 24 of the study on the books of First and Second Kings. And we're going to do that by looking at Second Kings 7 together. And with Second Kings 7, we come to an idea that I just want to kind of unpack on the front end so you get it, okay? You understand what it is and also what it isn't. It comes to us with this idea, this story does, that following Jesus and then the next word, like if you're somebody who takes notes and you underline and you highlight and you circle, this is one of two circle words in the statement that I'm going to give you. It is requires. Hear that. 
What is a requirement? It's something that's mandatory. You know, I want to go to your college? Well, great. Then we require you to fill out an application. You know what? I think I'll just show up for class. (laughs) Oh, well, then we'll escort you away. You know, like that doesn't work. I want to live in your apartment. Well, then we require you to pay rent. I just want to live there. Well, that's nice, but no, I want to get out of jail. That's going to require you to post bail. I don't want to do that. Well, then you get to sit where you're at. It's non-negotiable. It's mandatory. Following Jesus requires you like, well, well, so wait a minute. So does this require whatever it is that you're going to say, Tom, that I have to do all of this before I can become a follower of Jesus? No, that's the beautiful part. You don't get it all together and bring it to Jesus. And then he looks it over, you know, and he scans it and he surveys it and he goes, check, 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 check. Nope, you got to go back and do this. Oh, crud, all right, so I'll be back tomorrow. Okay, I got that. Okay, we're good. Check, check. No, there's one other thing. Okay, you got to fix it. Okay, I'll fix that. I'll work on that. And then I'll bring that. Do I get it? Okay, finally, your checklist is complete. You've completed all the requirements and now you can find... That's not the way that it works. You realize that your life is a mess. And nothing is in order. The whole checklist is blank. But you're completely undeserving until this Jesus in love for you that you cannot comprehend and you don't understand and you realize you don't deserve rescues you out of everything you need to be rescued from. And then in a response of love and of joy, wait for that word, you start going, oh, okay, I want to do what's required here. In other words, this isn't a have to do for me. This is a get to do for me. So so wait a minute. You don't even need to tell me because the natural response of my heart is to do that which you require. What is that? Following Jesus requires from a heart of love having been captured by him that you and I deliberately, consciously, systematically gather up all of the pieces and components of our lives. Now, let's play that out. What does that include? Includes our family. You're like, I don't know. I might want to leave that one off the list. That's my most treasured thing. It includes our time. You're like, actually, that's my most treasured thing. It includes our money. You're like, no, 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 recalculated. That's my most treasured thing. It includes my reputation, my influence, all of my contacts, all of my energies, all of my gifts and abilities and talents. It includes this body. It includes my life. Getting a feel for the weight of this? How about for the joy of this? Following Jesus, and this is a gift to do, it requires that you and I deliberately, consciously, systematically gather up all the different pieces and components of our lives, okay, and that we take them, and let's be honest, with a trembling hand at times, depending on which one we're talking about, you know, like, ah, we put it into this great big metaphorical bag that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who has come not just to claim our sin, but who has come to claim us. When the Bible talks about us in relationship to God through faith in Jesus, it speaks of us as his property. We're owned by him. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That is to say, with everything that you think, with everything that you feel, with everything that you say, with everything that you do, with every passion of your heart. What is it that you do that you don't use your body to do? Like, it's completely comprehensive. What does the psalmist say? He says, for the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. 
The Spirit is spoken of as being the anointing of God, if you will. He fills us with His Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You think of anointing. What do they do with the anointing oil in the Old Testament? And what does it mark things off as? Like, He marks off His kings by anointing them. He marks off His prophets by anointing them. He comes in all the implements of worship for the temple. He anoints them all. What is that doing? It's an emblem of His Spirit. But it marks these things as being owned by him. You think of David and Saul. Saul's the murderous king who's trying to kill David, who has himself been anointed to become the next king. And David has two opportunities to take out this murderous, evil, awful guy. Both times, what does he say? I shall not lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. He is the property of God. If you are a Christian, you are filled by the Spirit, and you are the property of God. Okay, let's begin again. So following Jesus requires us to consciously, deliberately, systematically gather up all of the pieces and components of our lives, and then with a trembling hand at times to take them and place them one by one into this great big metaphorical bag that Jesus Christ, who is not just our Savior but our Lord, he claims not just our sin but us, hands to us through stories like this. And then once we get it all in there... Which takes a little time. It's to get in there ourselves. And then to reach down and grab the sides of this bag and pull it up over the top. And then because we're fancy, and I don't know exactly how to do this, but maybe you can figure it out. We get outside the bag and we put like a nice bow on it because we want it to look cool for Jesus. And then we get inside and we grab both sides of the bag with everything that we are and everything that we have in it, including our own selves. And then we hop it over to the feet of Jesus where we then circle word number two, joyfully deposit and leave it as an act of worship. Why is it joyful? It's joyful because you're in love with this Jesus. It's joyful because you realize this Jesus, there's no one like him. There's no one higher. There's no one greater. We sing it. His name is the powerful name alone. His name raises the dead. His name forgives sin. He is unparalleled in the whole of the universe. My goodness, Lord, I wish that I had more stuff to put in the bag. In fact, if you'll give me more, it'll go in there. I'm required, not by duty, but by the passion of my own heart and soul to do this. It is my great privilege. And then having done that, it's to then get up every day and do what you're going to have to do, and I'm going to have to do every day. Do it again, and then crucify every desire contrary to it, because the desires come. Like, you get the desire, and you're like, I think I want to hop this dude back a few steps, you know, (laughs) like, I don't know how to get that bow off, but if somebody could do that for me, that would be awesome, right? I'm going to get out today, because I think that would be safer, from my perspective, I'm going to take this back. I'm going to, nope, get it all in there, get it all over there, and then crucify every desire, every passion that you have that is contrary to that surrender, that what you have and who you are might be used by him. And I'm just going to say that he has a better plan for you and yours than you do or than I do. And maybe you're thinking, you know, I I do personal worship on the app and, you know, like I get it every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I, I, I interacted with the study questions. I've read the other things. Are you sure that's what this story is about? Yes, but let's... Let's prove it, okay? 
So the story, if you have done your personal worship, you know this, takes place in the northern kingdom of Israel, which once again, and not surprisingly, is having trouble with its immediate neighbor to the north, the nation of Syria. And this time, the king of Syria has gathered up the full force of his army, and he has begun to march down from the northern border to the capital city of Samaria. And the idea is he's going to capture the city, he's going to kill the king, he's going to take over the country. You get the idea? And what happens is kind of fascinating, because as he's coming down toward the capital city of Samaria, all of these people that live in between Samaria and the northern border, instead of running to the right or to the left, run ahead of the army into the city of Samaria, which if you think about it, means the city suddenly gets really crowded. In fact, it's overrun with people. Why are they doing that? Seems like the goal is get out of the way. You're going to the very place they're headed and everybody knows it because Samaria has big, massive walls. Tall, thick, impenetrable walls. And the truth of the matter is, back then, that was a very effective way of resisting a massive army. So they're like, I don't know. If we think about it, probably the safest thing to do is somehow get us and ours inside of the city of Samaria, which creates what? Well, I'm sure it's provisioned to some degree for a siege of some sort. But it does create a food crisis pretty quick. So if you're the king of Syria, now you have two options, both of which he knew in advance and both of which he thought through, and the one he decided on is option number two. But option number one is, okay, I can show up, I've got my troops, and I can just slam my guys into the wall of the city, spend our strength, kill my people, or I can take the patient approach. I can say, gentlemen, we're going to be there, I don't know, six months, eight months, 12 months, we're going to bring enough food for a year and a half. We're going to bring the cornhole stuff. We're going to have a softball tournament. We're going to have a flag football tournament. I get to pick the team, so I'm pretty sure I'm going to win, you know, because I'm the king. And like, I mean, we're just going to be there for forever. Like, we're going to get there. We're bringing train loads of stuff in to provision our entire army, which is a big group of people, for a long, lengthy siege. And then we're just going to post guards around the city to cut off any supplies to the city. So eventually, they're going to run out of food. And eventually, if we're patient enough, we don't have to lose a guy. Like at some point, they're just going to come out and go, okay, we're starving. You know, (laughs) it's die or surrender, and we surrender. And as a result, what you find are some of the most desperate pages in the Bible, guys. You find people paying 80 shekels of silver. That's an exorbitant fee for a donkey's head. And not so, you know, some dude can hang it in his man cave because it's like the missing piece of his, of his collection or something. It's so that they can eat it, which is not only disgusting, it's forbidden as an unclean animal to Jewish people. They're like, ah, I don't care. How much do you want for this thing? Like 80 shekels. Oh, good grief. All right, you know, fine, whatever. Donkey's head for dinner. They're paying five shekels of silver for two quarts of dove's dung. You know what that is? That's what the bird leaves behind after he flies away from your windowsill. It's bird poop. They're eating it. Think about that. It's disgusting. Remember years ago, my wife uh, walked outside. We got like a little table outside and a couple of chairs, and she brought her coffee mug, you know, and she had her phone, and she's going to talk on the phone. So she put her mug on the table, and she's talking, and she's drinking the coffee, and she's talking, and she's drinking the coffee, and she's talking, and she's drinking the coffee. Finally, the conversation is over, and the coffee is all gone, and she looks inside her cup. And I don't know if there's like dude perfect for birds, 
But think about that. That dude licked his little claw and he rightly measured the wind, you know, like he, <laughs> he swooped in at just the right speed. It was nothing but net. <laughs> Boom. And the remnant of it was there, which, which means, I guess, that you can consume this stuff and live. Uh, what you can't do is consume it and kiss your husband. So you can't do that. Not, for, not for at least a couple days. We got to let that run its course. But several showers involved. It's this terrible story of these two moms of infant sons. And so mom number one with an infant son is friends with mom number two with an infant son. And mom number one has this murderous, evil, awful, ugly plot. So she takes her infant son and she goes over to mom number two's house and she says, all right, so here's the deal. We're all going to starve. We're all going to die anyway. Why don't we do this? Let's cook and eat your son today. And then after that, tomorrow, you can come on over and we'll cook and eat my son. Mom number two says, that seems reasonable. And so they cook and eat her son. The next day, she shows up at mom number one's house. Mom number one is saying the deal is now off. Mom number two is not happy with that. So she grabs mom number one, drags her out into the streets of Samaria. The king of Samaria is up on the wall. It's public. People can see this. They can hear this. And she then relates the whole story about her son and we cooked and ate and now we're supposed to eat him today and now she's hiding him away and saying, no, 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 this is not going to happen. And instead of asking the king to bring justice upon this murderous friend of hers who's defrauded her into eating her son, she asks the king to enforce the deal. She's like, we murdered and ate my son yesterday and I want you to tell her she needs to murder so we can eat hers. Think about that. It's crazy. The king lays hold of his robes and he just tears them in two. And it's revealed to all of the people that beneath his robes is sackcloth. You're like, what is that? It's really uncomfortable. It's a sign of mourning, of repentance, of humility before the Lord. And he goes to see Elisha the prophet. I need a word from the Lord. And listen to the word that he receives. Elisha said to the king, this is 2 Kings 7, verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, notwithstanding the fact that right now in your city, food is so scarce, they're paying exorbitant funds to eat disgusting things and they're cannibalizing their kids. Notwithstanding the fact that there are sentries all around your city and a massive army just over the hill on the other side, guaranteeing no one can get to you. Notwithstanding the fact that there is zero way for you to figure out how in the world this is going to happen, which is generally the way the Lord likes it. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, so like 24 hours from now, a sia, which is a unit of measurement, it's like seven quarts. So seven quarts of fine flour of good food shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs, 14 quarts of barley, good food for just a shekel at the gate of Samaria. What is he saying? Because this is really good news. He's saying 24 hours from now, total reversal. So instead of paying big bucks for gross stuff, you're going to pay almost nothing for really good stuff. So abundant will be the amount of food in the gates of the city that they're going to be practically giving it away. And listen to the reaction of the captain of the king. It says, And the captain of the king, on whose hand the king leaned, his right-hand guy, said to Elisha, the man of God, 
if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven and then just drop this massive provision upon us, could this thing be? Statement of faith or skepticism? He's like, this is ridiculous. Oh, wow. I mean, I've heard crazy things before, but this is has to be the craziest. Like, I'm going to write this down. This is insane. And within 24 hours, everyone are going to know that you're insane. Like, what are you talking about? And so what does Elisha say? Because it's instructive. He says to this skeptic, he says to the man, you shall see it with your own eyes. Like, it's going to happen and you're going to witness it. But you shall not eat of it. What is he saying? He's saying that the windows of heaven exist. And that the God who promises things that is are impossible to us in terms of the way that we're looking at it. I mean, the centuries are around the city. The big army is saying, nobody's getting in with provision. This is crazy. Like, the God who promises fulfills his promises. He delivers. He delivers miraculously. He delights in doing it miraculously. That you might stand amazed in his presence as we sang earlier. That you might realize, good grief, there's no one higher and no one greater than you. That you might reorganize your life and go, you, you, you did that for me? Like that, that, what else can I give? Is there anything I've left out? Like, is there something else? Maybe this. It's just a little thing, but it's all I got left. Can I, can I put that in the bag? Can I? The windows of heaven exist and God makes provision in accordance with his promises and words through the windows of heaven. But the only people who get to eat of them are those who believe that they exist and trust him to fulfill his promises. It's interesting. Then immediately we read, now there were four men who were lepers. Now hang on a second. Why does it matter that they're lepers? Because if it didn't, they wouldn't tell us. It would just say there were four men, they're sitting in the gate, they're discussing their options, that is what they're doing. But it stops and it says, no, no, there were four men and they were lepers. Okay, why does that matter? Because leprosy, guys, in that day was thought to be incurable, all right, and highly contagious. And so what does that make of these guys? There's a reason why all four of these guys are located together. It's like, how many lepers are there in the city? Four. You know why? Because they can only hang out with with themselves. Lepers were made oftentimes in ancient times to wear a cowbell around their neck so you could hear them coming. They were made in some settings to raise their hands up as they entered into a crowded room or in a crowded place and just cry out, unclean, unclean, so that you could be forewarned and get out of their way. I mean, if you want to talk about the most desperate people in this most desperate of moments in this desperate city, it's these guys. Nobody's giving them anything. Nobody's selling anything to them. Nobody's touching any money they've had. Like, oh man, you know, like you got to drop that in some Purell and we're going to let that sit for a couple of weeks and then I'll extract it. Like you're dying anyway and it's a grossly disfiguring disease. So these guys who have been cast out by the people of this city. All right, well, they're sitting at the gate of the city, and they're discussing their options at the entrance to the gate. And so they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, here comes option number one, let us enter the city. Let's just go back into the city. Well, the famine is in the city. There's no food in the city. Nobody wants to be around us in the city like... We shall die if we do that. So if we go into the city, well, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And then if we do nothing, and we just sit here, which is option number two, okay, well, we're going to die if we do that too. So they choose option number three. They say, so now come and let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. Let's go surrender to the enemy 
For if they spare our lives, we shall live. What are the odds of that? What are the, I mean, if you're the Syrians, what are you thinking when they send out the town lepers? You're thinking biological warfare. You know, like this is the only arrow they've got in their deal. Like this is the only bullet that they have in their gun. This is the only, they're sending us people that we think are highly contagious, even though that isn't actually true. And in their day, completely incurable. I mean, you're shooting them with arrows like, you know, 100 feet out. But if they go into the city, 100% chance they die. If they sit and do nothing, 100% chance they die. If they go out and surrender to the enemy, uh, 0.0000001% chance they live. They're like, we like our odds. So let's do that. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, well, we shall but die. And that's what's going to happen anyway. So they arose at twilight to go out to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. Why? For the Lord, in an apparent response to the repentance of the king, had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of, of horses, the thunder of the, of the hooves of the horses and the, the wheels spinning of the chariots, the sound of a great approaching, imminently arriving, overtaking them kind of army, so that they panicked and they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel, here's how they reason through it, has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of of Egypt to come against us. And so they fled away in the twilight and they abandoned their tents and their horses like they didn't even jump on a horse. They just dropped everything and ran. Abandoned their donkeys. But most importantly, they abandoned trainloads full of food that they had shipped in to outlast the Israelites who were starving it out in Samaria. They left the camp as it was, we read, and they fled for their lives. And notice what the lepers do. Notwithstanding the fact, and these guys know this, that back in their city, the the people there are desperate. Like they're paying outrageous sums of money for nasty food. They're cannibalizing their kids, and it's known publicly. It's been announced before the king, like, who's on the wall. Like, everybody knows this story. They understand the desperate condition of their city. Yet it says in verse 8 that when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and they ate and drank and they had kind of a little mini party. And then they carried off like silver and gold and clothing. Grab that, grab that. This is, looks valuable, right? And they went and hid it in the ground is the idea. They buried it by some tree so that they could figure out where it was later. And then they came back and they entered into another tent and they carried off things from it and they went and hid them. And what are they doing? They're taking this great provision that has come from God, that belongs to God, And we already know the stated purpose of it, which is what? It's the salvation of the city. And they're hoarding it and they're hiding it and they're keeping it all to themselves. Until we get to the next verse. It's the most powerful verse in the story. It's the pivotal verse in this this story. Verse 9, it says, and they said to one another, it's like they woke up. They went, oh my goodness, wait a minute, hang on, guys, stop. And what do they say? Five words. We are not doing right. We are not doing right. This this is a day of good news. What does the word gospel mean literally? Good news. 
This is a day of good news. And if, if we are silent about this deliverance and we wait until the morning light, punishment from God is the idea will surely overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. Okay, do you know what makes that verse so powerful? What makes it so powerful is that before you read it or before you hear it, you're already thinking it. Like you're watching these guys and you're considering the desperate state of the people of their city and you're going, God, what are you doing? Like you want to grab them and shake them and go, and you need to wake up, right? You are not doing right. You're not doing right. You're thinking it before you hear it. The second thing that makes it so powerful and so personal is that it is so very easy to connect the dots between them and us. And I say that because everything that I have, and forgive me, but everything that you have, came from God. And I know you want to argue with, oh, but I worked hard and I went to school and I stayed up late. And I, da, da. Now, where does your body come from? Because you use that to do that, right? How about your mind? You use that to do that. How about your gifts? You use that to do that. There is nothing apart from God that I have or that you have, including our very beings. It came from God. It belongs to God. How does God talk about all of our things, everything that goes in the bag, people, reputation, all of it? He talks about us as stewards. He's like, you know what? I've given you this. If you're exalted, it's because I've exalted you. If you have honor, it's because I've given you honor. If you have a reputation, it's because I've given you reputation. If you have gifts and abilities and talents, it's because I've given that to you. If you have resources, guess what? Those I've given to you, like I've entrusted them to you, and this is a trust, and it is ultimately for the salvation of your city. And again, think South Florida. Don't just... Think Fort Lauderdale, because, again, some of you live in Davie. You're like, no, it's not my city. That's why you don't come to the Fort Lauderdale Mayor's Prayer Breakfast. But anyway, but really, and what is our tendency, mine and yours? Bury that over here. Stick that over here. Okay, put that behind here. Nobody, hopefully, and God included, can see it. Looking after us and ours. Notwithstanding the fact that there are people in our city who are starving spiritually and physically, trading their lives away for the functional equivalent of donkey's heads and dove's dung, cannibalizing themselves and each other and their families and their kids at times in some circumstances, for the lack of what we have in Jesus and materially in some instances. And the question is, when are we as individuals, as families, as a church, as the church in this region going to wake up and have our verse 9 moment where we go, oh my goodness, I have been entrusted with all of this. Like, wait a minute, this belongs to you. This came from you. And this is, I'm supposed to steward all of this. And I, I don't know how much time I've got on the clock. You know, like, however much time it is, it's nothing compared to eternity. And so, and you are this beautiful and you are this amazing. And it is my great privilege to bring this to you and put it at your disposal to, for you to do like whatever you want to do with it. Like, when are we going to wake up and say, we are not doing right? We're not doing right. That's where these guys are. Like they figure it out, they shake each other, and then they fix it. 
They go back to Samaria and they tell the king, and it says in verse 16, then the people who like get the news because it just spreads through the city, went out and plundered the camp of the city and or the camp of the Syrians, and the whole city was saved, for the provision was so abundant that a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. And then we read about the skeptic guy, the captain guy. Now the king had appointed that guy, the captain on whose hand he leaned, to have charge of the gate. So he's at the gate in this moment when all of a sudden the word gets out. And when the people got news of this great provision, they trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel. About this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered, yeah, fat chance. If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And Elisha had said, well, you're going to get to see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat of it. And so it happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gate. And he died. Guys, following Jesus requires us to consciously, to deliberately, to systematically gather up all of the pieces and components of our lives, all these things that have come from God and that belong to God, and that he has given to us primarily for the purpose of advancing his mission, of saving the city of South Florida, of being a part of what he's doing to bring rescue to people all around us, people we work with, people who are neighbors, etc., people around the world. And what do we do with these things? We are to take them, unbear them from behind the tree, you know, like and bring them out. Why? Because we are so enamored with Christ, we can't leave them buried anymore. That's the point. And to put them in the bag. And once we get them all in there, it's to get in the bag and then to pull the bag up. And to, I guess you could put the bow on my bag and uh, when I'm stuck, so I won't be able to help you. But you get the idea. And then you grab the bag and then you hop it over to Jesus, right? And joyfully because it is your great joy to do so, to deposit it at his feet as an act of worship and then to crucify every desire to take it back. We're lepers, but we've found the salvation that the people all around us need. We can't keep it to ourselves. It's not right. So with all that said, I'm going to ask you some questions. Question number one is, what are you believing the windows of heaven for? You know, like, what is the impossible thing in your life that you feel like, no, no, but God has given me a promise. And you're like, yeah, but there's an army around the city. I ain't nothing getting through here. Like, I have no idea how this, because I don't want to be the man on whose hand the king leaned. Do you? Because I feel like the windows of heaven exist for those who believe they exist. And trust God to do what he says he's going to do, even when you can't figure out how. So what are you believing the windows of heaven for? Secondly, what do you need to put in the bag that you've been holding back from God? You know, you know the answer to that, right? That's, a, that's the easy one. As soon as I started going down the street, you're like, oh, great. Because <laughs> you, know? you knew that. What's holding it back? Like, what says this is more worthy than him? Because if something says that, what does that say? I haven't really seen him. I, I, I'm not well enough acquainted with him. I don't know him well enough to realize that, that he is life's greatest treasure, that he alone is worthy. Thirdly, how are you making God's great provision of Jesus known to the people in your world? Because that is your mission. 
It just, it is. It's mine too. You're like, oh, but you're a pastor. You get it. it just makes it harder, honestly, like at times. Seriously. I got to go out of my way to find people who are not Christians. You work with them every day. What a gift. It's remarkable. Do you have a list of people who do not know Jesus that you are intentionally pursuing an authentic relationship? It's kind of a yay-nay deal. Like, so you know the answer to that. Not, you know, pursuings with the hope that they come to faith in Jesus, but then if they don't, they're not going to be your friend anymore. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean people who don't know Jesus that you are loving all over, that you are pursuing an intentional relationship. Like, who are you praying for then to? That they might come to Christ. And maybe you let them know that. Like, you become the weirdo at the office, and you start going around to your workers and going, hey, listen, I, I spend some time in prayer that, you know, like every day and, and every week I pray for people around here. How can I pray for you? That's very disarming, incidentally. I've never had anybody I've said that to go, what a jerk. You know, like, and they're all kind of like, well, you might be weird, but actually, pray about this. That sort of opens the door to conversations, by the way, down the road. You know, you can circle back. Hey, how's that going? Because I was praying for your brother's, monkey's, uncle's, cousin's foot. You know, like, how's the foot? They had a surgery. I wrote that down. I texted you on the day of. I'm praying for your uncle's whatever surgery. Like, it's amazing. Who are you talking to Jesus about? When was the last time you talked to anyone about Jesus? Sorry. Just asking, and I'm not asking you to say it out loud. I'm just kind of going, oh, yeah, wait a minute. That is our mission. That's the idea. That's why I'm here. Clock is running. All of this, ultimately, to that end. We do Alpha three times a year. Who are you inviting to Alpha in the fall? Because you could start pursuing it, and you could start praying about it. You know, It's up to them. I mean, the Lord's going to have to move, and either they'll go or they're not going to go, and that's up to him. It's up to us to be faithful in inviting people to go. Have you invited anyone? We've been doing it three years. You know I love you, right? Like we're going to hug it out after this? I'm asking myself these questions. We just asked our staff these questions. We didn't all do very well. Like it is time to say, look, what we're about is serious business. It is a joyful, serious business. It's us and ours in the bag and given to him. All right, last question. Do you pray for the salvation of our city? And again, the city of South Florida. Because here's the deal. And some of us are going for it, okay? We need to add to the number. God has moved in miraculous and mighty revival kind of ways, culture-changing, city-changing ways, in various parts of the world, including our part of the world going back a ways, in every century of the Christian church. So why not us? Why not now? That's what I want to know. I'm just praying, Lord, before I die, I want to see it. Like, can I just see it before I die? I mean, I think it's coming, but I just, like, before, and I'd like to see it sooner rather than later. You know, like, I'm working out, I'm staying in shape, you know, working on the cholesterol, that's coming down, I hope. Otherwise, I'm eating ice cream again because I haven't had it in six weeks, and, and it's been a major life adjustment for me. Like, but no, really, like, I, I want to, I want to be a part of that. Like, if that isn't what we're pursuing, what are we pursuing? God, break us out of our blindness, out of our hardness, out of our malaise, out of our materialism, out of our superficiality. 
out of the thought that we're going to live forever, we are, but not here, and put us on mission. So what does following Jesus require of you today? Because whatever it is, it is a joyful, wonderful, awesome, and amazing thing to hop it over and give it to him. So work that out. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this day and we are so grateful that though nothing on the checklist of good was checked by us, in fact, quite the opposite, you have chosen to love us. You have chosen to rescue us. You have chosen to save us. You have chosen to redeem us. You have chosen to collect up all of our failures and out of each one of them in ways that are amazing to bring good. Nothing is wasted with you. Lord, we praise you that that is how great you are. And we ask that you give us a vision of you, that you become more beautiful to us, that you become more amazing to us, that you become greater and more worthy to us than anything this world has to offer, including physical life itself. That we might go all in on you, put it all out there on you, Lord, and be used by you. So do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.